I founded a business on my own. I kept 100% equity to the day I sold it. So I didn't have anyone to lean on. My dad's not in business. None of my friends are. I didn't have any mentors. I didn't understand any business groups. It was just me, myself and I. So I learned a lot. It was so, so lonely in places. I'm not, there's no pity party here, but days were lonely. And it's, if you weren't, if you're not strong of mind, it, it could seriously, you know, do damage. Hello and welcome to another episode of Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. This is the UK startup podcast and I am your host, Dan Murray-Serta. Today, I'm really excited to bring you my conversation with Oliver Cookson, the founder of fitness supplement giant MyProtein. Oliver bootstrapped his business to a massive exit whilst keeping 100% ownership and all from just an initial £500 overdraft. His story is full of surprises and we'll be covering everything from how to handle sudden wealth to fighting fraud in the courts after a mega deal turns sour. But before all that, we have to go back to the beginning of my protein and tell the story of some high stakes milk negotiations. No, I'm not joking. Effectively, I was a keen gym goer um, and I used to buy a protein powder from what was the leading sports nutrition company in the UK at the time. I'd probably been using it six months. And one day I, I literally was in my kitchen and I looked at the back and thought, what is actually, what, what is this? I know it's whey protein, but what, what even is it whey protein? So my mind is very much always ask the awkward questions or always what if, or always ask the questions like that and always try and delve. That's just, I've got an inquisitive mind. So I looked in the back, ingredients were probably something like whey protein, colouring, flavouring, sweetener, and then probably some some of the bits and babs fillers. So I thought, okay, the active ingredients in this are whey protein, flavoring, and a sweetener. Right, what's whey protein? And I didn't actually know where whey came from. I knew it was from a milk source, but I didn't understand it properly. So I went onto the internet, what's whey protein? When you make cheese, the whey's and curds, as the old nursery rhyme says, the whey is the byproduct of making cheese. It's the stuff that floats on top. And not until that many years ago, maybe a couple of decades ago, they just used to throw that into the river. Literally, dairies just used to pour that into the river as a waste product. Well, then someone somewhere realised it's full of protein, it's highly bioavailable, it's a great product. And they, through filtration processes and whatnot, you can actually get up to like a 90% protein powder. Or it can be as low as 30% and the rest is lactose. And that's typically the powder that they use in baby food. So cut a long story short, I then found who sells whey protein. So I started filling around dairies and dairies um, said, yeah, we sell whey protein. It's raw whey protein. It's 80%, which is what the grade that I wanted, which is like sort of the de facto standard in sports nutrition, 80% whey. It's whey protein concentrate, it's called. And I called countless dairies and the way whey comes is it comes on a pallet with 20 sacks and it's 20 kilos a sack. And the cost of it at that time was £3 a kilo. Whatever it was, I didn't have the money. So I couldn't buy a pallet of, of whey. So I then said to them all, can you, can you sell me a couple of sacks? I don't have the money to buy a pallet. And they go, no, no, we can't do that. We've got to split a pallet. It was, ooh, you know, it's just too much effort, blah, 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 blah. So this, is, this was the same sort of conversation that everyone said to me. Then I phoned one guy. A guy called Andy, and I give him a shout from Baccarel. I was sort of getting a bit, certainly losing my confidence of being able to find something. And and I, I did the same to Andy, and it was a little bit slow. And then, but I really thought, right, this is this is your go. You have to give up. You've got to try your hardest now, as you did on your first call. 
So this is a sales sales pattern. Please believe in me. I'll do it. I'll buy two sacks now, pay up front pro forma. I promise you I'll be back on the weekend and I'll buy four, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, you know what, Oliver? We don't split pallets. It's the right pain in the arse, if I can say that, admin-wise. You could have said worse on this show, mate. Oh, right. <laughs> okay, work up to that. Um, but, and it, that's the key thing, but I can feel something within your, your voice. You've got a passion. And it was obviously a guy who wanted to give back. So he he believed in me. I was, I was sort of flying on the seat of my pants a little bit, but I, I bought the two sacks of whey, put them on the website that I built from the ground up. There's no templates or frameworks or Shopify's or, or WordPresses or Joomla's or anything like that in these days. I built the first version of myprotein.com in Notepad with a web development language called Cold Fusion and a MySQL backend. And it was done completely from the ground up. It was like my labor of love for six months and just my after work, basically. So yeah, that's, that's how it started. So I went back to him, bought four, bought more, blah, blah, blah. And it literally just rolled. As, as I sold the product, the money came in and um, I spun it back out. And to this day, I still think my pros use them uh, for some of the products. And I, I, I don't think they use them for whey anymore because they go direct to the dairy, the back row distributor. But I think for some of the more peculiar products, they use them. But when I was in tenure, we were buying hundreds of tons or tens of tons off him at the end. So it, everyone won. We were the biggest customer. Yeah, and, and how did you actually grow it then? Luckily, the problems I had were all keeping up with demand. So because the overheads were minimal, I think the we had like a serviced office room. It was 400 square feet, I think. It was tiny. It was effectively a, a three-man office. But I um, put a bench in there because I used to pack all the powders. So on the floor, imagine along the, along the, along the wall was all the different sacks of protein, literally the sacks. Stainless steel table, a 10 litre bucket, a big scoop. Because in those days, my protein was customized. It was made to order. We only made the products to order. So someone ordered two and a half kilos of whey. I went to weigh two and a half kilos into the bag, into the scale. Cable tie it up. It was all very primitive. And then into a box. And then they had something called the customizer, which was the unique selling point, which you could create your own formula. And that's why it's called my protein. It was protein for you. So, because some people, you know, a 16-year-old lad who's, who weighs eight stone is, doesn't need the same nutrition as a 20-stone shredded experienced bodybuilder. But when you buy products off the shelf, it's for everyone. You know, it just doesn't make sense. So that was my sort of inkling and make it a bit more personalized, if you like. So back then, three key channels for growth were AdWords, so 2004 was quite early on in AdWords, but it was it was there. I developed the AdWords campaign from, I never used it in my life, but I figured it out. I basically built the campaign from, from, from the ground up and I'm super systematic and very process driven and very detailed man. So I was, it was very structured, my, it's my programming mind. It's, so I built, an, if I can say, it's an amazing AdWords campaign, which I managed exclusively to 2009 people tell me to delegate it but i just it was my labor of love yet my cost per acquisition back then without brand taking brand out because that's the usual people try and dilute it was two pounds 34 for whey protein so if you if you typed whey protein into google and it clicks on your ad the cost per acquisition was two pounds 34 now if you did the same you'd be lucky to get a, a cpa for 25 pounds so it's gone up over 10 times 
and it's unsustainable. One of my rules of thumb, uh, a pretty basic one, is if you can't pay for the costs in the sale in your first order, then probably don't do it. Well, you can't do it in a bootstrap business because you're going to burn cash. Obviously, if you've got a big investment behind you and you just want to get scale quick, then you, know, you can go and burn the cash. But for me, I just needed to, to make the money. So I was spending a couple of quid on AdWords. There's £300 a month on the on the room. I didn't pay get paid anything. There's no other costs. So I was selling protein. I was buying it at £3 a kilo. Maybe it's costing me three fifty with the all the bits and flavorings and whatnot. And I was selling it for like £12. So it's a decent margin. So that was so that was one of the, the, the channels. The other one was is the referral scheme. So back in 2004, this this win-win referral scheme wasn't wasn't a thing where you give someone a referral code, they use your code, they get 10% off, you get some referral points to use on your account. We were the first to we pioneered that. So it's pretty much the thing you must have now, but we were the we were the first, and it's one of the most proudest things that I've come up with. And that generated 33% of all new customers. And it cost nothing. It cost the price of a business card. Because we used to send a business card, which was um, had a few call to actions on the front and on the back. It was a blank space where you could write your unique code. And people were just throwing them in gym lockers, putting them in windscreen wipers. I don't advocate that. Uh, giving them to the friends. And even one, one person who na- remained nameless worked at one of the uh, famous, the largest vitamin store on the high street. I won't mention any names, but you can probably figure it out. He actually worked in there. When someone used to come to the till, to buy, and I don't advocate this again, go to the till with protein, uh, protein products. He say, don't buy that. Go here. It's half the price and a lot better. <laughs> so I built a, a real passionate army, these people who who are my sales force effectively. And 33% all new business. The numbers now aren't a million miles away from that. It's still a super powerful tool. And finally was body, back then social media wasn't around. Facebook, I think started in 2004, but it certainly wasn't in the UK. Obviously there's no Instagram, no nothing like this. So what a lot of people chatted online back then was the bulletin boards. I don't know if you remember them. So like V Bulletin, blah, blah, blah. And there's one called Muscle Talk, which was the number one place for bodybuilders. And bodybuilders are super passionate people and they're very detailed. They, they, they log everything and they, they're very, it's a good community. It's a strong community. So my angle was to focus on that hardcore market. And I spoke to the, the forum owner and I said, you've got a feature on you on V Bulletin. It's the, that's the, uh, the framework where you can create a sticky post. So effectively the post sticks on the top. I tell you what, if I give you X, and it wasn't a lot, would you keep a sticky topic at the top for me for an advert? So my advert was something like whey protein for like half the price. It's got this full certificate of analysis, no bullshit. We're fully transparent and give it a go. And it just blew up like wildfire. So then a lot of the bodybuilders got it. They loved it. And then it just, it was just rollercoaster. They were, so if you went to a gym, and you know you wanted to get advice on how to best do form for a squat, for example. Would you go and speak to the that sixteen-year-old eight-stone guy or the or the big experienced guy who obviously knows what he's doing probably more? You'd always go and speak to the big one, and these were the guys we were targeting because then when anyone asked them what they do, they always just say you need to have protein, you need to have creatine or glutamine or whatever it may be, and typically they'd give them a card. So that was the that was the the the, the rolling effect. That's that's how it happened. So over this period so far, I mean, that sounds like, uh, you know, a mixture of good insight, good instincts for sure, great market timing, not a lot of competition, but also the competition that was there was a little bit stale. 
but obviously as the years as the years are passing um leading up to um what became obviously quite a brilliant acquisition for you personally what was the market like you know did you face any big challenges were there any notable problems you know you mentioned already uh, meeting customer demand was one so i guess you know if there wasn't any other challenges uh, around team around mindset around mental health or any of these things and i'd love you to unpack uh, what it's like to not fulfill your customers desires if that's the if that's the main challenge yeah that was growing really quickly not not having any, any experience in operations being slightly risk averse so we had five warehouse moves in seven years which was too many if there's something i would have done differently with hindsight is i would have invested more in a bigger warehouse so something bigger i kept on going a little bit bigger a little bit bigger but the stress and the strain of moving warehouse people say moving homes the most stressful thing in the world. Try moving a warehouse while the business is growing. That's enough to uh, get anyone to an early grave, I promise you, especially five and seven years. So I would have I would have been less risk averse, but I didn't have the money, you know, because signing leases is expensive. It's a big millstone around your neck. That was that was a that was definitely a challenge. In terms of competition, there was lots and lots of competition, but they were all retail brands. There's a couple of and they, they, they were all retail brands. So effectively, they sold to distributors and sold to Holland and Barrett. So there was that chunk of cash in there's their retail margin was in there. So effectively, what we did, or what I did, was we disrupted the market and turned it on its head. We, we were completely vertically integrated. So we manufactured all of our products and we sold all our products to the end user. So no one could keep up with our margins, our speed to market, our agility. Effectively, I could come up with an idea in the morning, a product's idea, and it'd literally be on the on the shelf, so to speak. It'd be on the website by the afternoon. And it's impossible, literally impossible for anyone to keep up with that. And because I was going 100 miles an hour anyway, that plus that speed to market is it's indefensible. And for a retail customer, for a retail company, it takes three months for them to design a product. And then they've got to get into the distribution chain and all of the faff that goes with that. And then it ends up being twice as more expensive. So they're at a major disadvantage. So in 2005, I think it was a year after my president, I think it could be called Bulk Powders launched, which are probably the second biggest online in the UK. But they were very much a Me Too brand. They, they just copied everything we did. And for that reason, they always stayed in our rear view mirror. You know, we, we obviously had it was healthy competition, kept us on our toes, but... Yeah, you kind of want that, don't you? Yeah, you need it, really. It keeps you on your toes, jumps you out of bed. It does create a lot of stress and anxiety and all those all those things, but that's where the adrenaline comes in. You don't want too much cortisol in your body because it's not healthy, but you need that bit of um, a kick up the rear end now and again, don't you, to keep you on your toes. But what one of the, one of the biggest retail brands actually tried to move online... And they set up an online sister website selling direct. And they were a bit of a threat for a time. And they decided to pull the actual online model because the retail customers are getting pissed off because it's obviously undercutting them. They should have, obviously, there's a massive mistake on their half. They should have just put all their eggs in the, on the online basket. But they didn't. They pulled that one. And then we, by then, we just motored away. You did mention a good point, actually, about mental health. There's so many facets to this. But first of all, it's okay not to feel okay. And... When you close your eyes at night, if you can get to sleep, I, I struggle sometimes with my mind going wild. I've got different ways to deal with that now. But but back then, fell asleep. I'd always wake up, tomorrow's a new day. You'd Everyone has a shitty day. There's, there's no doubt about it. There's days where the dark days, it's just, it's just not your day. You feel like banging your head against a brick wall. 
I don't know of any businesses, I know quite a lot of business owners now, where it's a linear path to success. There's always an up, down day, and there's peaks and troughs. There's peaks and troughs. Obviously, you want more peaks than you want troughs, but troughs will happen. It's how you deal with those troughs. Sometimes you just got to distract yourself from that. It could be something outside your control. But what you what you need to understand, and one thing that I was luckily quite strong at, I've got a real strong solo mental fortitude. As you say, I founded a business on my own. I kept 100% equity to the day I sold it. So I didn't have anyone to lean on. My dad's not in business. None of my friends are. I didn't have any mentors. I didn't, I didn't understand any business groups. It was just me, myself, and I. So I learned a lot on that. I couldn't, it was so, so lonely in places. I'm not, there's no pity party here, but days were lonely. And it's, if you weren't, if you're not strong of mind, it, it could seriously, you know, do damage. So one of the, one of the coping mechanisms that I taught myself was when you're actually getting super, on a scale of one to 10, one super happy to 10, totally is maxed out stressed. If, you've, if you're doing a problem like that, for example, if I was doing a, if I was programming a website and something wasn't going right and I could feel, you know, where you just feel the stress and all the adrenaline and all that horrible stuff coming into your mind and you'll become all cloudy and fuzzy and it's not a nice feeling. But that's your natural response from the, not medieval days, from prehistoric days, Neanderthal days, where it's flight or, fight or flight. So basically your body then, when it's in that state, it's great for physical activity. So you become a lot more physically um, strong or better than you do mentally. And it's just a change in response. Your cortisol comes up and you're in a real strong place for dealing with physical stuff. But mentally you're impaired. You're not going to figure stuff out. You're not going to come up with the best invention in the world when you're in that state. So what then I did, I figured that out, realized, okay, got my watch or my phone, put 30 minutes on the countdown timer, went and did a completely different task. So typically I was doing a mental task. I was going to do something physical. I go to the gym or go for a run or a walk. If I was doing something physical, which I didn't really do much in the end, and I do something mental. So I tried to switch it up. So typically by the time, you know, obviously you try and think about it and you, these thoughts you've got to sort of accept that they are just thoughts and fears and, you know, fear is a liar. It's not going to bring any benefit to you thinking, what if this happens? What if this happens? How about that? What if this person says this? It's all irrelevant because we're worried about every permutation in life that could happen. This building could fall down now or I don't know, anything could happen. It just, it's just wasteful of your time. And the key is get as much bandwidth in your brain free of good stuff because all that negative stuff is taking up bandwidth. And, you know, you know, don't let that take up. As I said before, regrets. Holding regrets in your mind is just taking bandwidth up. Delete it and let, let something good come in. But then particularly by the time the 30 minutes the clock beeps, you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't even be thinking about that problem anymore. And then you come back to your desk, you look at it, your cortisol levels have dropped, your mind's more open, your eyes are awake, and typically you'd fix the problem quite quickly. So, my protein is doing exceptionally well, but can it last? Join us after this quick break to hear all about Oliver's sale of the business and potentially devastating trapdoors he had to avoid during the process. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. 
But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. You ended up selling the business to the Hut Group, and I do I do want to get into the conversation on on how that happened because I think it's particularly interesting, obviously, to understand the mechanics of how a sale works, etc. But obviously, you go from being poor as a person, a mindset, something you're used to, to being very rich. I'd love to know, you know, I guess I'll ask it very bluntly: What is it like to be very rich? The thing is, with me, I had um. A clear goal when I was when I was eight, I I wrote the a, um, a teacher in my primary school. The lesson was um, what you want to do when you're older. Most people said racing car driver, football player, fireman, whatever it may be. But I've still got the letter my mum gave me two years ago. It blew my mind. So I've got it framed now in in one of my offices, and it basically says I want to be a, something like I want to be a businessman. I want to. I want to be in control of lots of people and I think I'll be a really good boss and help them lots, which is a bit out there really for, for an eight-year-old to think that, um, you know, to create jobs and things. It was, so I think um, I've always had it in my mind that I'm going to be successful. So from when I was in my teens, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a millionaire by 30. All my friends laughed at me. No one believed me. I knew I would be. And then I, I guess it obviously transpired that I was, you know, I was a multimillionaire before I was 26. You know, when I was 30, I... I sold uh, half the business in cash and shares. I think it was nearly £40 million cash I got on that day. And then obviously there was a, a big waterfall event with the Hook Group sale, which was, you know, a lot more considerable. I was £280 million cash on that day. So um, obviously there's been money in and out since then. But those, the point I'm making is that the money that came in the first sale, it didn't just, it wasn't like winning a lottery. I already knew it was coming. So I sort of really prepared myself. So it was more of a tapered, a tapered expectation rather than it being a sudden windfall. So when I, people have always ask me when I got that 40 million a quid, it might have been a bit less than actually, 38, whatever it was. When I got that, what did I go and buy? Or what did I do? What was it like? And I took it, I literally took it in my stride. It didn't make any difference to me really. I didn't buy anything. I didn't treat myself to anything. Life just went on. Obviously I might have bought 
a new car or something, but nothing, I didn't... Or presumably a home as well. Yeah, exactly. It was a lot more difficult with the IPO when the Hook Group floated last year, which you may or may not read about, which is obviously a, a successful IPO with six billion or whatever the number was. So that was different because it was a very public number and it was a lot of money. Obviously, not saying 40 million isn't, but it was because there's a huge amount of wealth. And I also felt a responsibility to help people who I love. My friends are like family to me as well, help people. And, you know, it's not fair for me to, I felt a lot of responsibility. It's not fair for me to have all this money. And I'm seeing some of my friends still struggle to make, you know, living between paycheck to paycheck. And I just didn't think that was right. So I really needed to have a cold towel moment and write down who I, who I want to help and, and went through that process, which was very, it really did help. So I give before I bought anything. So it's something you can't really explain. But for me, it's not just the money. It's more of the end of the, my proteins, my baby will always be my baby to me anyway. So you know, that was like the end of a journey. Okay, going back to back to business then briefly. So in 2011, um, you uh, were approached or obviously uh, were acquired by the Hutt Group. So you've alluded to it here, but basically what led to that? Why did you choose them? How did you get into that equity deal? And what was the nature of that equity deal? And most importantly, what advice going through this process do you have for entrepreneurs that are going through acquisition processes? So in, in, um, in around 2009, 2010, I started to realize, well, I didn't start to realize, but I knew I was starting a valuable business. I think we were making 2 million EBITDA, you know, as a brand, it was a leading brand in the UK at the time. It was online, it was sexy, it was a growing market, all of the market reports, it was always going to grow the sports nutrition market and obviously it's transpired it has. And it was, we were fully vertically integrated. So I knew it was a valuable business. So I thought, okay, the, the next stage would be to bring in, I want to take some cash off the table. So the best analogy I use is a one-armed bandit machine, a fruit machine. You keep putting your pound coins in and you're spinning the wheels and your jackpot keeps on going up and up and up. But, you know, press one wrong move sometimes and it could all come crashing down. I know that's fair and contradicting myself, but these, I guess you've got to hedge your bets sometimes. And all of my money was in my protein. If something catastrophic happened, then... I lost everything. And is that good business sense to have all your eggs in one basket? It's definitely not. Obviously, you've got to do it for a period of time, but it's good to try and diversify and move some of your eggs around. So I thought, okay, I'm starting a business. It's worth, I don't know, 60 million quid or whatever it was. I will sell 30%, take X million off the table. That's in the bank. That secures mine, my family, my children in the future's future, basically. And then the rest will roll into the, the new co We'll then go for the second bite of the cherry with not just someone with dumb money, not a private equity house who just throws dumb money in. I wanted someone's coming who could add value. So we were looking, to, we were going into Europe at the stage. So maybe someone with European exposure, e-commerce exposure. Maybe they could have brought in a, an NED with grey hair who could have helped me bounce ideas off because I didn't have that at this stage. That was the plan. So I approached a corporate finance house, a local boutique one. They came in and said, look, we, you've got an amazing business, everything, but there's one problem, one problem. Uh, you, me, okay. <laughs> so, what have I done? He says you're too good, and if you if you get run over by the bus tomorrow, the proverbial bus, the business dies. 
And I thought, you're right, actually. I sort of knew it anyway, but all my team were mid-managers or production-level warehouse staff. It was me that was driving it forward. And the business would have fallen to pieces. So they said, and also, Oliver, we, we think you're really good, but you're not the man to groom and professionalise this business. You need us, effectively. So that's a red rag to a bull. Obviously, I've never done it in my life before, but I thought, there's no way someone's telling me I can't do it. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. So I set about a plan. I gave myself 12 months to professionalise the business. We documented every process in the business from packing an order to printing an order off to doing a purchase order to doing a, um, a purchase order. Everything was all documented. It was literally the dummy's guide to do my protein. So if everyone fell off, got run over by the bus the next day, you could get a whole new team in the next day and you could do it. And the processes was such a real important thing to do. It saved so much time in training, it gave people accountability. We kept on evolving the processes, refining the processes. It was, honestly, it was instrumental to helping that business professionalize even more. I'd recommend it to anyone. It was a painful process, but it was a well-worthy one. So that there was that, and then there was also me being, me being too involved. So then I recruited the senior management team. I think I brought in four or five directors, all high senior directors from blue chip companies, marketing directors from Rightmove. There's some, you know, some good, real good quality people there. People, you know, you should know your strengths and your weaknesses. I know my weaknesses for sure. I know what my strengths are as well. And I think that's an important thing everyone should understand about themselves and build a team around you that complement your weaknesses and are better at you than your strengths. For example, Mark, Mark Coxhead, who he actually left and set up a, a rival company afterwards. He's a fabulous marketer. He had the good mix of analytical but brand which is a very hard mix to get in an MD usually the super flair or the quiet numbers driven this guy had both so he came in and he added value above he brought he brought an additional angle to the brand he brought in different ideas which were amazing I have two ears and one mouth and look I'll always listen to people I'll make the final decision but if someone's idea is better than mine that's your idea brilliant let's go with it I'm certainly not one here for um I had a term in, in the board meetings, best for business. That is it. I know it sounds quite harsh, but if it's, I don't care about me, let's not care about you. If it's not best for business, let's not do it. It's got, everything's got to be best for business. Of course, we give the employees the right framework. We look after them right. We're fair. We pay. We're safe. We do all that stuff. But if we, we need to fundamentally make a decision in the business, it has to be best for business. So that was always like our real champion moment. So I brought the senior management team in. They embedded within the business within six months. I delegated loads of stuff down to them. Everyone was thinking, oh, you're not going to be able to delegate. But I loved it. I delegated and I could then focus on more of the forward-facing things and develop the business more. So that's when I then went back to the corporate finance agency and said, oh, my God, you've done it. I said, yeah, but then I saw a few other ones and I ended up going with a different company in the end. So that's the process started. We went through all of the, the rigmarole of creating the information memorandum, basically the sales documents. And we had, I think we had like 18 private equity bids, lots of P, big P houses, which you'll, which you'll know of. We had Nestle. I don't know if I can see these names, but I'll send them anyway. And Nestle put a bid in, Pepsi, another huge conglomerate. And they were all very interesting bids. So... That was the first stage. Yeah, and I guess first stage is make it bloody competitive, right? The more competitive it is, the more in control you are, the more opportunity you have to be in the driving seat. Otherwise, you are controlled by the process. Absolutely. We, we were a hot cake. We were a hot cake. It's obviously a lot easier to sell a business that's 
behind demand. You can bounce, you can use stalking horse approach and bounce one off, off feature. But some of those bids didn't make, make it past the first stage. They just got thrown in the bin because of various reasons. Maybe they didn't have the right credentials or the check size was too small or the provisions were too heavy or, or whatever it might have been. So I whistled it down to three private equity houses. We're really keen on one of them. They were, a, I won't say the name, but they were a early investor in a wiggle.com, the, the cycling online store. And they did a great job with that. So I thought that was, they were good. The Pepsi offer was a great one, they were, but it was an earn out. So they would give me half the cash down and then half cash for three years and it was a guaranteed sale. And obviously it was going to be Pepsi's company, so it could have gone anywhere. But it was a very much of a an earn out. And I was working, I was, I was going to head up the sports nutrition globally and report into the CEO of Pepsi Global, which is an amazing opportunity. But I just had my first child. I'm the sort of person that's going to be standing by the bed at 9am and uh, going to a corporate, but I'm, I don't think I was employable at that point. So it wasn't right for me. So got down to three private equity bids. There was one company we really liked. We had a good energy, but the, the thing that they, they fucked up on, basically, they've, they've since said to me that you're the one that got away. And I said, it was your fault. You 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 shoot yourself in the foot. So what they did is we went, once you go into later in the stage, I don't know if you've been through the process, but when you go later stage, you go into an exclusivity stage where you sort of just you and them are talking and then they dive deep into your finances, into your accounts. It's painful. It's painful. It's literally, it takes up all your senior manager's time. It takes all your time. It's just a stressful thing. Where's that forward? What's that number about? It's just, it's just not interesting. It's, it's a real stressful time. So I said to them before that kicked off, once I learned how much effort had to go into this, how much senior management and middle management time this is going to take. Look, our revenue is growing double digit, triple digit in situations. And if all these people are going to be focusing on this and not the business, it's going to flatten off. It's not going to go down because our repeat customer was insanely high. And it's a, a consumer product people bought every on average for every four weeks. But it's going to flatten off. There's no question about it. Go, yeah, it's fine. No worries. We'll, we'll work it into our model. No problem. I said, okay, fine. Went away. Four weeks later, we did the due diligence. And then they come back to me in the meeting and said, right, look, shows you management accounts for this month. Said, so here you go. Oh, oh, that number's got a bit, it's a bit more flat than the last few months. Oh, started scratching the chin. And I said, are you actually joking me? We had this conversation a month ago and now you're in sales. So it said, no, 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 we still want to sell business, but we're only going to offer you something like 20% less. I said, look, you are wasting my time and your time now. If you can look me in the eye when you're in sales mode and tell me that you're not going to do this and then you do it, what are you going to do once you've got all the control and all the provisions? That's not how a, work, a fruitful working relationship. So, so just, that's it, the end. And they tried to backtrack then, but I just forget it. You, the trust had gone. Good man. <laughs> yeah, there, there's others in the background, but yeah, this, and that's something I think people should be very, as a, as a lesson there. Stancy guns. One thing private equity will do is it will try and chip you. So, Call their bluff early. I did it luckily, but call their bluff early and say, you know, on these points, they will try and get you on bits and bobs of the, what comes out of the due diligence and try and chip the price. Get them to try and firm a price up before that. Unless it's something really material, then get them to just, you know, put the commitment to it and don't be bullied in that situation. And on private equity, one of the things that really scared the life out of me was the provisions, the legal provisions. So like swamping rights and all of the 
bad lever provisions and all these horrible things, make sure you get, if you're going down a PE route or VC route, make sure you get a lawyer who understands this, the commercial, and get them to explain each of those things to you. Go read about it on the internet. You do not want bad lever provisions in there. Or if you have bad lever provisions, make sure they're not they're only very extreme circumstances, like you have I don't know, gross, gross misconduct and, de- and define what gross misconduct is like fraud or something. Not just because they, and I've seen some, which some people have been, uh, it's, it's horrible, but they, they have bad lever provisions. If they're misperformance and the performance targets are way high, they misperform, they can get rid of them. They lose bad lever provisions, they go under that provision and they lose all of their equity. And this is, this is it's like daylight robbery. No, you're completely right. And it's great that you're bringing this stuff up because um, we've seen it and we've heard about it on this show as well from guests. You know, it's really important to know uh, the devil is in the detail with these deals, right? So making sure that you're completely aware. Get a good lawyer. Get a good lawyer. It's important. The lawyer who did my deal was probably not as good as it should have been, but I was a bit wet behind the ears. But get a good lawyer. Get someone who's recommended, someone who's done this before. Do a beauty parade, get, you know, three lawyers in, get them to tell you why they should do it, get them to share examples of what they've done. What do they think the sticking points are in the deal? They've all done those sell purchase agreement, SPA. Everyone's done as SPA. What are the thorny points in there, do they think? Do it, just take your time. It's your business. And believe me, you will live your life regretting, not that you should regret, you live your life regretting not spending those few extra hours or those few extra weeks doing it at the start. Oliver's story doesn't end with the sale of my protein to the Huck Group, so make sure to stick around after this quick break to hear all about fraud, fear, and what it costs to build a leading brand. You know, you talked about a bit wet behind the ears and potentially she could have done better, but you've got one of the best known um, exit stories on the basis of you know, 100% equity uh, owner, and then you exit to the Hutt Group. And then by whatever means, whether it was on purpose, whether it was stroke of good luck or whatever, you know, you became a major shareholder in the Hutt Group, right? Yeah. So look, so the Hutt Group came in late in the process. So after I had this debacle with with that private equity firm, uh, I must admit, I'm not one for... for, uh, for Naming and shaming. Yeah, but I did bump into the guy. And I just said to him, how are you doing? I said, you should have you should have done the my protein deal, shouldn't you? And he goes, Oliver, that's the one that got away. I said, well, he said, no, I've learned from that now. I was too aggressive. I said, good, well, hopefully you won't do that again. <laughs> but anyway, that's a different story. But yeah, the hook group came quite late into in, in play. I think they came in around that time and they were offering something very different to what else was on the table. There was, there was no lever provisions. There was no provisions at all. I could have left the business one day after. There's no earnouts. There's no funny business. It was very flexible. They could move quick. I just had my first child. I'd had eight years of insane. You're a co-founder. You're a business owner yourself, so you know how stressful business can be. But when you're on your own, it's even more stressful. So I just felt like I wanted to not take a break, but I just really just sort of like spread the spread the the stress. So the hook group came in. They offered to give me half the money in cash and then half in equity which transpired at the time to around 13% equity in the Hook Group. I think the business was valued at the time about two, 200 million. That's what their evaluation was. So yeah, look, it was, it was super important to me to have skin in the game for the next round because I always knew my priority would be number one in the world. When I sold it, it was number one in Europe. We had localised 
websites in local languages in we're number one in Germany, we're number one in France, we're number one in Spain, we're number one in Ireland, and obviously the UK as well. So the blueprint was there, it was all done. It was what the next stage was, was just rolling it out. So you have to again go to new territory to territory. We already had it all figured out, if you like, where should we go next? Scandinavia, Eastern Europe, get Europe covered and then go start looking east. The plan was never really to go west because to America, it's quite, it's a very tough market to, to break. And east is... Um, was a much more fruitful outlook. So yeah, and then I, I met Matt, Matt Moulding, the, the CEO, founder of um, of The Hook Group. Super passionate guy, very, we got on well. And uh, he sold me his vision of The Hook Group. I thought, I thought they could, um, they'd definitely go places. Um, he was, you know, he's an impressive guy. From there, it was, that was, that's where it, it all went, it all went great from there, I guess. The deal went quickly, sorry. It was a quick, it was a quite quick process from that point. So, and then you joined the board, correct? Yes. So that was part of the deal. So Matt actually offered me the position of COO. So, but I, I, I said, oh no, sorry, I headed up the nutrition division. So I reported into Matt, headed up nutrition, but I only lasted on that for three months. It, was, it wasn't really for me, but I was um, on the board, yes. So how was that? I mean, uh, over the last few years, you know, being on the board of such an impressive company, one of the success stories in the UK, what's that experience been like for you? Yeah, it was very different back in 2011 12. It was good at the start. I learned a lot. I was wet behind me years. I've never been on a high-end corporate board before. There's people like Angus Monroe, Richard Pennycook, the um, co-op CEO, I think. There's some... Sir Terry Leahy from Tesco's. There's some chunky people around that ball table, um, you know, with, with grey hair and lots of badges. So I've, I, uh, I learned a lot. It was good. I stepped down from the board a year or two after because I started another business, which was a potential conflict of interest. And also this is when the litigation was happening. So it all became a bit awkward. So yeah, I stepped down from the board at that time, but then I rejoined uh, about eight months or so before the float. And you've just discussed and, you know, mentioned, you know, the litigation, like in, in, briefly in a nutshell, what happened and what can you discuss? What can't you discuss? And why did you come back? I can discuss everything because it's a public matter. It's full of judgment in all 28 pages of its glory or, uh, you know, on the internet, if anyone wants to read it. Call long story short. And look, I've got nothing negative to say about the hook group. I'm just speaking facts. You know, I think Matt's an amazing uh, CEO. He's done an amazing job, of course. However, the... In 2011, when we did the deal, they said to me, the Hook Group was making, I can't remember how many million exactly. It was three, four, five million or six. It was making millions of pounds of EBITDA a year anyway. It was turning over about 80 million. So it was higher than my protein, but it was, and making decent money. And the Hook Group then, let's be clear, it was selling CDs online. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, obviously that's not a long-term business from 2011. You know, I was only going to go one way. I'm not sure how many CDs people sell online these days. So I sold it on the basis of that. And that's how we got to the valuation of that 200 odd million. However, six months after I did the deal, it transpired that the accounts were wrong and they were actually making minus 1 million. Uh, so they were selling CDs online, which was obviously an industry that was in decline to extinction and they were making minus 1 million while my business was fully vertically integrated it was a leading brand 
a consumable product where people come and buy them again. We were making six million pounds EBITDA a year. My protein was a much bigger business than the hot group at that stage. So obviously I was a little, I was more than upset with that, as anyone would be, because you've just effectively been robbed. Because obviously the deal would never have been done if we would have known the real numbers. So I had this chat with them. Obviously they disagreed. They got quite aggressive in their approach. They countersued me for some ridiculous matters because my process is a strong business. A cut long story short, we went to court, the high courts, which was a one month long court case in London. Uh, William Blair was the judge, uh, who's Tony Blair's brother. Uh, so it was, he's a super senior judge. And yeah, they, were, they got found guilty of fraud. They defrauded me out of my protein. That's the long and short of it. It's there in black and white if you go and look online. And I was awarded seven, eight million pounds in damages plus my costs. And you took it, do you have an option to take it in stock? And would you have at the time if you were given that option? I wasn't given the option, but I would have done. But it's it, the court process, I don't think, I don't, I don't think that's a mechanism court can do because then you've got to go for a revaluation exercise. I'm going to say it's worth less. I'm going to say it's worth more. So you just give me cash. Obviously, I lost, I lost a lot more than that. Than, I lost a lot more than 7 million. But obviously, to be fair, I was vindic- vindic- vindicated. That was the most important thing for me because I don't want to just litigate for litigation's sake and I'm not, a, I'm not a bitter man. But if someone effectively robs of fraud your business, you know, I think you should stand up on your own two feet and fight it. I think if you roll over it, and I was bullied all the way through and threatened, not in a bad way, but just legally. So yeah, I think you've got to do what you've got to do and I was vindicated and that's that's for, for everyone to see. What's it like to be on the board with people that you are literally in litigation with? How does that even work? Yeah, you need to wear a tin hat. Yeah. <laughs> you need a foil hat. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's obviously not ideal. But when they were discussing the litigation case, I stepped outside the room. Uh, look, it wasn't conducive. I'm sure there's lots of little quorum meetings before or after during the week when I wasn't there. But yeah, the board meeting, it was a bit thorny. It was a bit thorny. But then it got to a point where it wasn't productive. So that's why I resigned from the board. And also I had a business with a slight conflict of interest. So it was the best interest to do that. And what about your mental health over that time? Did it take a dip? Were you at a position where kind of it didn't really matter? So you just had the mental fortitude to carry on? Yeah, look, it, it was... I'm, I'm strong-minded anyway, but yeah, I'm not going to lie, it was very stressful. I lived in London for a month, I was in court every day. It's obviously been cross-examined, it was a full, intense process. But, you know, winning that case when I got the judgment was probably more of a wow, yes moment than when I sold the business. Maybe because I knew the business sale was coming, but the judgment, you open a piece of paper and it's, is it innocent or guilty, basically? You know, you don't know until you open it, it's like an instant... It's an instant, uh, an instant result with with the business. You know, it's, it's the sale. You know, it's coming down the track. So yeah, it was. It, look, it was a. I learned a lot. I worked with some amazing QCs, some amazing lawyers, um, and I learned a lot about litigation and, and law. And I enjoyed it. To be fair. Okay, look, com- coming towards the close now, Oliver, because uh, I could keep talking to you for absolutely ages for the lessons, but um, sadly we can't. So, you've got this like amazing story of bootstrapping you've got an insanely large war chest right personal fortune that you've amassed you've gone from manchester to living in monaco what are your key insights and massive takeaways that you need listeners to know if they are bootstrapping their business and also for those bootstrapping or not that are on a journey to domination of a category 
Well, first of all, just absolutely be prepared for the work that you need to do to get it to where you want it to get to. Look, you can run a business two days a week and I'm sure it'll pay the bills and just tick over nicely. But if it's going to be, if you're trying to make a leader in something, you've just got to get to grips with that you are going to have to commit your life to it. I don't think there's any shortcuts personally. I never got up before eight, nine in the morning when I started my protein, but I was working to past midnight. So you don't have to be a 5 a.m. club member and all of this. Whenever you work best, just do it. But the, the hours in the day, you need to get a lot done. So just prepare yourself for X years to work your socks off and just really, you do need to dedicate your life to it. It's a massive commitment, but the rewards are worthwhile. Also, no such thing, I say, as uh, work-life balance. That's just life. I don't think there is. Honestly, I'd love to say it is because I know it's all very nice and everything, but... And look, there's, there's jobs that you could do where it has a lovely work-life balance, of course, and that's, you know, it's not for everyone, but if you want to create a leading brand a national leading brand or an international leading brand, there's no work-life balance, especially if you're bootstrapping. It's impossible. Totally agree. Next, out of your book of wisdom. Fear is a liar. So basically, as entrepreneurs, we both know that we obviously, or, or as human beings, we do get these horrible thoughts. What if this happens? Oh, that, that might happen and all of this stuff. Then you just need to start acknowledging that that is going. To, it's part of the parcel of the process. It's part of life. Just like you need to acknowledge those, those fears, accept them for what they are, which are fears, and they're not reality. Accept, acknowledge, and let them go. Totally. I think we need to leave it there because that was a perfect way to end, mate. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, buddy. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. When you fail, you know that you fail because, you know, it's, it's part of the game. I think you have to be very, very aware of that when you start your journey as an entrepreneur. You have to know that if it goes well, you, you find gold at the end of the rainbow. But there are a lot of crocodiles and tigers and quicksands on the way. So there's a big price potentially, but there's also very, very high risk. Next week on the show is Healthily, an incredible app helping you track your health and live better, having raised a ton of cash to build out a massive vision. So stay tuned or you'll miss out. If you've enjoyed this episode and you don't want to miss out on more just like it, then please get your phone out and follow us on your favorite podcast player. And if you can think of someone who'd really benefit from what you've just heard, then why not share the episode with them so they can also learn something new today as well. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.